Welcome to Mechanicsburg Mystery Presents, a conversation with Elliot Pattison. Elliot is a lawyer specializing in international investment and trade issues. He's also the award-winning author of 15 mystery novels, 10 of them in the Inspector Sean series set in contemporary Tibet, and five in the Bone Rattler series set in the years leading up to the American Revolution, the latest of which published last month was The King's Beast. Elliot, thank you for talking with me today. Pleasure to be with you, Bill. Thanks. Okay. Let's start by getting into the uh, Bone Rattler series. And I wonder if you could just briefly give me an overview of it, because it's there's quite a lot going on, uh, both with the characters and also the historical movements going on behind it. Well, exactly, because I was trying to capture, you know, these many, many events and the you know, dynamic before the war. Um, the series really tracks the the birth of America. And I say that in contrast to the you know the, the birth of the colonies this is the, it starts at the near the end of the french and indian war and proceeds towards the the outbreak of hostilities uh, but the premise of the book is that the real revolution was taking place during these years uh, when the colonists uh, were beginning to learn what it meant to be American. It was sort of an identity crisis they were going through and very gradually uh, they were learning what it meant to be American. Mm -hmm. And this is a slow process uh, throughout the books um, because the first one, when does the first one take place? What year? Uh, 10 years before the King's Beast, 1759. So the, war, uh, the French and Indian War was still underway. Mm -hmm. And this is where we meet Duncan McCallum. And his character arc is fairly extensive as well because we meet him in the King's Beast as um, sort of an agent for the Sons of Liberty and a friend of Ben Franklin and off doing various uh, uh, tasks for him. But that's not how he started out. Right. He's, you know, my, my, my main characters, the core characters, are all emblematic of key events or dynamics of the age. Duncan is he was a... Uh, member of a Highland clan that was nearly exterminated uh, after the last Jacobite uprising in 1746. He was just a boy. He was lucky enough to be away and nurtured by relatives, uh, became highly educated. But then as he was about to graduate medical school in Edinburgh, uh, a, a lost uncle shows up and it turns out that the uncle was a very much uh, wanted Jacobite rebel and they arrested both of them and hang the uncle and 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 sent uh, Duncan as a prisoner to to America. Mm -hmm. Okay, well now along the way, of course, he acquires a number of allies and friends. Obviously, Ben Franklin is mentioned. There was a a, a Native American Conowago as well that shows up in in the King's Beast and uh, Sarah Ramsey as well. Here, um, friend, girlfriend. Uh, it's hard to hard to describe what it's like in well, colonial times. In the she she and Conowago appear in all the books and and uh, as the series starts, uh, she is she is the uh, she's the daughter you meet her as the daughter of an aristocrat, a very powerful aristocrat, uh, Lord Ramsay, who becomes Earl Milton. Um, but she, as a young girl, was kidnapped by Iroquois Indians, Mohawks. Uh, and was raised by the Mohawks uh, and loved the Mohawks and desperately did not want to leave the Mohawks when, um, as the you know, true authentic fact, the, the end of the war brought an agreement that the, that the colonist uh, captives of the tribes would be returned to the colonists. It's true, it's true, many of them did not want to leave the tribe. Uh, she was forced back uh, at the same time that Duncan 
uh, makes his appearance as an indentured servant to their household. And so she is learning to become part of, of colonial society uh, at the same time that Duncan is, you could say. That's also one of the more interesting subtexts going on is the relations between the colonists and the Native Americans. Sometimes it's hostile, sometimes it's friendly. Uh, we'll go into it a little later, but Duncan has developed a kind of a spiritual uh, affinity, and they with him as well. Um, is that was that common in the times? Well, I, you know, I don't. I wouldn't say that it was common, but it was absolutely. Uh, it's authentic, and it absolutely happened. And the, there was a there was a really fascinating link between the Highland Scots and the Native American tribes, and the especially the Iroquois. Uh, but it went on to other tribes as well. And if you if you study the history of the in the late 18th century, early 19th century, it's very interesting. That you, most people are quite fascinated to learn that many of the tribes were led by Scots. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the chief that led the Cherokee on the Trail of Tears is named John Ross. Okay, he was a Scot. I'll be darned. And and the same is true for the the Creeks. The guy named McGilvery was mm. there, led them on the wars against Andrew Jackson. Okay, and so you know there was there was a uh, quite an affinity between the between the woodland tribes uh, and the Highlanders, and it's attested to in a lot of diaries. Uh, written mostly among the ranks of the military in the war when the British officers made comments about sort of, they were very, you know, they were, they typically would denigrate the Highlanders as sort of, you know, crude, you know, beasts. Uh, and they treated them like beasts of burdens and they were always the sacrificial, sacrificial troops, et cetera, in battle. Uh, but it, the, they, there were, there were eyewitness reports about how uh, a Highland uh, regiment came into Albany, Fort Orange, and the and the Iroquois were stunned, and, and they began greeting the. They ran up and hugged the Highlanders uh, like they were lost brothers, and you know they they hit it off. Now there's a lot of theories as to why that was, but it's it's absolutely authentic. And so, you know, Duncan is one of these Highlanders who evolved from terror over the natives to you know very close affinity and a and as you say a spiritual link. Mm -hmm. There's kind of an ancestral link for you as well. You have some uh, Scottish ancestry in your background, I understand. Lots of it, yeah. <laughs> I had Scots in my family that were coming over starting in the 1650s, okay? Uh, but they, I had Scots also in the late 19th century that came over. So I have, I have many branches of my family from Scotland. Mm -hmm. Yes, I have a um, William and Mary Moore on my mother's side came over in 1776 and they landed in Virginia and stayed there long enough to realize they didn't particularly like the slavery and they moved to what is now northeastern Ohio yeah. and the, the family settled there for 10 generations or so after that. Unfortunately, not quite as romantic as 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 yours, but it, there is an affinity there as well, I feel. It was quite a story, though. Yeah, it is. It is. There's also, a, you populate your story with a number of historical figures as well, such as uh, Ben Franklin. Daniel Boone shows up early in The King's Beast as part of a uh, uh, recovery of bones in Salt Lick, Kentucky. Was that? Bone Lick. Bone Lick. Bone Lick, Kentucky. Uh, what is your purpose in, in using them in well, the story? I, I, it's a good anchor to, to actual history. So I want to give readers uh, something they recognize. Uh, but sort of in a tantalizing way. And so, you know, uh, Boone, Ben Franklin, uh, and a lot of other, you know, prominent uh, rebels at the time appear in my books. 
but I fleshed them out. I think, you know, they haven't really been given their just desserts in our history books, you know, which treat them in a very sterile way and just kind of report the facts. And here's the statistics of Daniel Boone and, and Daniel Boone and, and, and Ben Franklin and all of these people were fascinating, you know, individuals and, and very complex. And, and uh, you know, they weren't the stick figures that, that our history books make them out to be. Oh, especially Franklin with his affinity for nude air baths. You have a scene later in the book in which he's in the kitchen with with uh, the, the the rest of the characters and they're talking and has affinity for uh, for dessert, and that that right. love for it is just something I really uh, I really found relatable. <laughs> but also, you have those characters sometimes doing things that are not quite. They're actually involved in the story as well. And I won't give away the uh, um, uh, what what happens in the book, but Franklin plays a very big role in the story, in the King's Beast. So you're not afraid to just um, get them get them dirty, get them mixed up in I your story. I think it's a I, first of all, as I said, it's it's a good way to entice readers, but I think it's it's sort of true to them, uh, you know, to give them real life dilemmas that they have to fix based on you know their particular skills and their particular personality. So it was fun to create a situation that would be very authentic to Franklin, uh, which which primarily has to do with scientific pursuits being being censored or inhibited by the government uh, in England uh, and then have him play a role in, in you know, in solving them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's what I loved about reading The King's Beast is that you could read it just as a, a thriller. It's an adventure. It takes place in in the forests of Kentucky, in Philadelphia, in London. You get all these great set piece action scenes but at the same time if you're willing to think about the the themes that you raise like native american spirituality and how uh concepts of freedom can change based on where you are there's a lot going on as well um the king's beast takes place in 1769 which is like only six years before the war broke out in 1775 can you give us an idea of what the political situation is between the colonies and great britain so there's a lot of tension. The the uh, key developments during the decade before that, or the 1760s, you know, were the stamp tax and the 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 the, the onerous duties of the Townsend Acts and the Quartering Act in Boston that brought regiments, a couple of regiments of troops to Boston. Um, the the Tea Party hasn't happened yet. The Boston Massacre is about to happen, but not quite yet. Um, and there are there are <laughs> Britain. Uh, sort of created this situation by self-selecting the people they sent to America, meaning they sent people who were who had an axe to grind against the government, mm -hmm. uh, by and large, uh, for all kinds of reasons, you know, criminals or people they couldn't, you know, there was sort of an economic servitude or people that, that couldn't find religious freedom. Um, and so, you know, at this point, there's nearly two million people living in America and, and quite a few of them are very disenchanted with London. Uh, and they're beginning as a result of a lot of factors, uh, including the self-confidence of victories in the French and Indian War, are beginning to realize that maybe they don't need England, maybe they don't need Britain anymore. Uh, and that's at the heart of the, of the, the plot lines in my books. Okay, they're, they're finding independence but in very practical ways, okay? Because, you know, if you, history books will, you know, throw in a couple paragraphs about how America discovered independence. Okay, and that was, you know, <laughs> and it really, it really um, minimizes a, a fascinating uh, series of events, one of the most fascinating uh, in all of history, I think. 
Yeah, there is a lot to unpack here, especially uh, anywhere from uh, British relations with the colonists, um, their attitudes towards the colonists, the colonists trying to find a definition for themselves because they're not British anymore. Never mind the fact that you had, uh, you know, the Dutch in New York and the Germans in Pennsylvania yeah. alone. They're trying to find what it means to be an American. Right. And they're kind of and feeling it along without actually knowing that they're doing part, it. It's part sense. of that. And you touch upon a really important point here. The colonies didn't mingle with themselves. They they almost all of their commerce and and the broad intellectual you know intercourse, so to speak, was all directly from their colony to London. Uh, and and uh, they had to begin. So people maybe they weren't quite British. But people felt like they were Pennsylvanians, you know, and they didn't feel like they had a whole lot to share with people in Boston. Uh, but now, by the late 1760s, they're beginning to commingle. The Sons of Liberty are beginning to cooperate across the colonial borders. Uh, they have they have witnessed how how soldiers from the various militias uh, were able to cooperate during the, the, the last war. Uh, so those colonial boundaries are breaking down at the same time. Very important uh, dynamic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The another theme for this book is is the the role science is playing in the run up to the revolution and the uh, establishment of an American identity. There's the hunt for bones in uh, in Kentucky that's uh, called the incognitum, if I've got that right. right. And there's you know great excitement over what that was and what it means. Um, 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 McCallum is trying to get the bones to London, and there's opposition to that as well. There is also the recording of the transit of Venus across the sun, uh, which apparently was very important at the time as well. Um, what was their purpose? Why were the, especially like the Sons of Liberty or people who were uh, colonists, why were they paying so much attention to the value behind these bones or recording the transit of Venus? So the, the colonies understand the colonists were um, more highly educated by, on average than the average uh, British citizen. Uh, they were more literary, there were more books sold in America than in, in, and then in Great Britain at the time. It's interesting facts, it's true. Uh, and, and so uh, there was a lot of self-generated intellectual pursuits going on. Uh, you know, printing presses were proliferating, books were proliferating. Uh, there were what we would call science clubs uh, essentially being formed in various population centers. Uh, and there was a huge amount to learn about this continent. Uh, the, on the other hand, Great Britain and all of the, all of the European powers always pursued um, what we would call science as, as uh, a matter of the government. And the king, King George especially, uh, was very covetous of this. He, he ran the Royal Society. He decided who was going to explore where uh, and, and you know, what, what, you know, what scientific project he would pursue that year. The transit of Venus was the event of the decade in that context. He built, and the transit of Venus, I, I learned a lot about this, um, is when the, it was when Venus crosses the, the face of the sun. And if you're able to measure it when it crosses the first time, and then measure again when it crosses the second time, uh, you can actually, it takes a lot of trigonometry, but you can calculate the distance from the earth to the sun. It had been theorized for, for centuries, but the very first people, and the king was, in, you know, was absolutely obsessed with being the one to do, to do this for the first time. He built a very elegant observatory outside of London uh, in Kew Gardens. 
Uh, but at the same time, these do-it-yourselfers, uh, mostly out of Philadelphia, uh, guys named Rittenhouse and Biddle and a few others that were well-known for other pursuits, uh, they developed, uh, with the help of some correspondence in London, uh, the instruments necessary and the network necessary, because you have to have multiple observations in different locations uh, to conduct this. And they actually were the first ever in history to successfully calculate the transit. And, and the king was, was beside himself. And so there was a lot, there was a lot of buildup to this. And, and the, the, uh, it does feature in my book. Uh, along with these bones that you mentioned, which also are very authentic to the time. There was a, a, what was called the Bone Lake in, in what is now Kentucky, which was this big area of, of a big flat that was like a salt lake uh, where hundreds and hundreds of ancient bones could be found. And they were what, what we now know were mastodons and mammoths, both uh, as well as giant sloths and a, and a number of other uh, Ice Age creatures. Uh, and they had been, just, you know, the Indians had known that, you know, that they were there, of course, for centuries. And they and they had a bit of a, you know, worship uh, aspect to them with respect to the bones. But um, the colonists and Europeans were just awakening to this. And Ben Franklin, indeed, you know, it's true. He sent for some bones when he heard about them. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was really interested. And in, as a president, he actually sent Lewis and Clark to collect bones to bring to the White House. Uh, so, it, you know, this is all very timely. And all these... You know, this effort, this dynamic building towards the American identity was, you know, coinciding, you know, with this dynamic around the scientific pursuit and and the uh, new self-confidence of the Americans who, who were able to to achieve the scientific uh, feats without the help of, of England and Europe. Uh, right. And that all kind of wrapped up in the American identity. And I think actually for certain people made a really big boost in their confidence as Americans. Mm hmm. Yeah. Another thing that impressed me was your depiction of Native American spirituality, because there's a there's a long sequence in the beginning, of course, when they find the bones and the, the, the local Indians are concerned that if they're taken out of the area, their gods will go with them and that if they even go to London and encounter the European gods, they may not come back. And I was just fascinated at at. Um, that was kind of a depth of feeling and thought that I have not seen in other books that impressed me. Yeah, you know, there's there's a lot. I think there's a lot to that. You know, and the, you know, we we, we know that the Shawnee and, the, and they were the the dominant tribe where the bones were. Uh, you know, did indeed impart a lot of spiritual, you know, spirituality in the bones. And they, and although I I in the book I actually have a bone shrine that I. I, I fictionalized, but in the course of my research at the end, I found out that the Shawnee actually had such a bone shrine. Uh, and in how, and this, it always fascinated me how would the you know the tribes react to these ancient bones? And and uh, there was a great mystery. And of course, their spirits, their religion, if you will, uh, was was nature based. You know what we would call animistic. I mean, you know they you know they they felt you know there were giant trees that had spirits in them and and you know there were you know ancient creatures that walked the earth that that had particular connections with the gods and the other side and, you know the the afterlife uh, and so uh, you know I think it's very plausible that this you know this sort of intense spirituality accompanying these bones mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, another thing that impressed me was also the discussion of freedom, because the Indians obviously have a different concept. This was this is from uh, Duncan's conversation with Daniel Boone and how you can have freedom 
in the wilderness with also a lot of risk attended to it. And also, of course, freedom in town that would that Boone would not see as being free at all because you're bound by your business, by your being ruled by somebody else. And that's the kind of a theme. It makes sense leading up to the revolution because it's always going to be a discussion, isn't it? And my books usually have at least one, you know, somewhat poignant conversation about freedom, about the nature of freedom. Uh, and everybody, uh, the, the, the idea broadly there being that everybody comes to their own notion of freedom. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the fact, that, the fact that they actually were thinking about freedom is something very new. Uh, and and it's and I think it's sort of part of the natural progression to the American identity that they they be, they would have to figure out what what does this mean? I actually don't have to have the government telling me what to do, but if I don't, then what you know what should I do? <laughs> mm -hmm. They always want to have somebody in charge, but at the right. same time, you don't want to have them too much in charge. Yes. Well, let, uh, I want to also bring up uh, your other series, uh, Inspector Sean set in Tibet. I understand you visited Tibet. I have, yeah. And, I, and you know, that's uh, 10 books in that series. It, and it features, also features sort of abandoned and outcast people. So I, my protagonist, the main character, is a Chinese investigator from Beijing who was sent to prison for investigating the wrong people uh, in Beijing. And he was sent to Tibet. Uh, to what essentially is a gulag, which is is very authentic, uh, and and uh, uh, left to die, but essentially he is revived, or as he sometimes says, he was reincarnated by Tibetan lamas who were also prisoners, uh, you know, with him. Uh, and when the the local the local county governor has a, a really difficult murder. Uh, to solve, he happens to discover that Sean was like the leading murder investigator in Beijing and brings him out of prison to help him solve the crime. And then that leads to a, a, um, you know, a new relationship with the governor. And at the end of the first book, it, he gives Sean limited freedom to, to uh, work on other cases uh, in, the, in the locality. Mm -hmm. I understand the, the first book, The Skull Mantra, that won the Edgar Award for Best, uh, best First Novel. It did, right. Yeah. Yes. Congratulations. It was actually listed. It was also shortlisted for the uh, the Dublin Impact Literary Award, which is very rare for a mystery to be listed for the, for that award. So I was mm -hmm. very proud of that. Absolutely. Are you going to write more in that series? I I I expect I will. Right now, you know, we've sort of put it on hold. You know, we have ten books, and and the arc of of Sean's story, you know, came to a a pretty good place in the tenth book. Uh, but I have a lot, I have a lot of people asking for more. Uh, I I'm working up a new series that will actually build off of that series as well. Oh, that's good. That's good. And um, what do you see as the future of the Bone Rattler series? Well, you know it's going to progress towards the revolution. And I, I, my preference would be one book a year, meaning, you know, so the next, the next book would be 1770, which is a very, very active year, both the Boston massacre. And there was also not as well known, but there was also a New York massacre. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, it was it, it, now 1770, people are beginning to really become polarized and beginning to do things like, you know, secretly hoard weapons, et cetera. In mm -hmm. uh, quite, a, quite a, a shift in what the Sons of Liberty are about. Mm -hmm. So we're going to see a uh, shift from 
um, I wouldn't want to say propaganda, but obviously the promotion of, a, of, of American sciences and trying to negotiate a future relationship with Great Britain to maneuvering towards actual revolt and outbreak. Right. And I, when I, I didn't know this quote until last year, and I've been writing the book for the, book, the series for several years. But as I said, I, this is about the formation of the American identity. And John Adams, looking back uh, on his life and the, and the birth of the nation, made a comment, but, and, you know, years after he was president, that the, the, the American Revolution didn't happen at the outbreak of hostilities. It happened in the hearts, of my, hearts and minds of the, of the people leading up to the war. Mm-hmm. That's what this is all about. Uh, in the hearts and minds, you know, you know, sort of transforming into an American identity. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing future books in this series. I was not exposed to your book until just until just recently, but I enjoyed it very much, and I highly recommend it to anybody interested at all in the American Revolution. That's so, great. Appreciate okay. It. Well, thank you very, very much. I appreciate you talking with us, Elliot. This for the inaugural Mechanicsburg Mystery Presents, and. We'll see you all next time. Thanks very much, Bill. You're welcome.